I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. See, majority of hands up. New Year's resolutions are, are these goals that we set at the beginning of the year that we think are really going to help us change our lives in some positive way. And I think as we flip that calendar to a new year, we look at it as a great time to reflect on what's most important to us and then to set those goals, to make those resolutions that we think are going to help out in some way or another. A lot of the resolutions that people make uh, are things to get them healthier, things like exercising more, uh, losing some weight, stop smoking, uh, things like that. Other, other popular resolutions have to do with spending more time with your family and your friends, maybe getting out of debt, maybe going on a vacation this year. Uh, for many Christians, there are some spiritual resolutions as well, things like attending church more often or trying to read through the Bible in a year or things like that. There are any number of resolutions that we can make at the beginning of the year that, that start off as great ideas, but we all know that oftentimes it doesn't take very long before that resolution just kind of comes to a screeching halt. Um, for some of us, maybe we've set resolutions on January 1st that have already died by this point in the year that we, we're struggling, with, struggling to uphold anymore. Uh, there was a study published in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago of 3,000 people around the United States who made New Year's resolutions. And they found that 88% of those people failed to follow through on those resolutions throughout the rest of the year. 88%. And we've probably experienced that in our own lives. I found about my own life as I was preparing for this message as we turned over the calendar to 2012. And I began to realize, you know what? I'm really not positive that I've ever officially made a New Year's resolution. Even if I haven't officially made a New Year's resolution, I am a person who sets a lot of goals for myself. And some of those goals even come around the beginning of the year. For instance, in the last couple of weeks, I've identified a couple of new, relatively small goals for myself. Uh, but if I am able to live those out, I think they'll really help my personal life and my ministry. And so even if I don't use that New Year's resolution terminology... I still set goals, um, and some of those I follow through on, some I don't. Now, it doesn't matter that much, okay, what terminology we use. What matters is whether or not we are prioritizing certain important things in our lives and living out those priorities. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do we prioritize what's most important in our lives and really live out those priorities? I specifically want to talk about what should really be our most important priority in our lives, and we're going to be talking about that out of a passage in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, so I invite you, if you'd like to, to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. Philippians is a small book, only four chapters long. It's in the middle of the New Testament. It's written to a church in a, in a Greek city called Philippi. It's in uh, northeastern Greece. Um, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church and in this passage we're going to be looking at today, as I said, we're talking about goals, talking about what should be our greatest priority. And what we're going to see here is that our greatest goal should be that Christ is number one in our lives. The goal, not just a New Year's resolution, but an ultimate goal that should really define all of our lives from birth to death is that Christ should be number one in our lives. Paul definitely had this as his goal uh, back during our Christmas series, we looked at a passage just before the one we're looking at today where um, Paul said that he considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. He says that nothing compares 
to knowing Christ. And that's what we're looking at today, how, how Paul has a consuming passion for knowing Christ, and we should share that same passion. So as we prepare our hearts to look at this passage, let's pray and then dig into what Paul has to say about priorities. Lord, um, as we begin this new year, we flipped the calendar over to 2012 about a week ago. Uh, we want to come to you and ask that you will be at work in our lives, helping us to prioritize you in 2012. God, help us to recognize that we all have room for growth, but that we all have the opportunity, since we still have life and breath, to prioritize you in fresh ways. So Lord, I pray that you will teach us this morning from your word and through your Holy Spirit how we can prioritize Christ during this new year. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in Philippians 3, verse 12, where Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now this morning I want to look at this passage in two different parts. The first part is found right at the very beginning of the passage where Paul's saying, you know what? We all have room for growth. We all have room for growth. He starts out by saying, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. I really look at this as his humble self-assessment. He's looking at himself. He's previously set out his goals of how he wants to make Christ number one in his life. But he realizes, you know what? I still have room for growth. Earlier, the passage comes just before the passage we're looking at this morning. Paul's laying out his passion for knowing Christ. Verses 8 through 11 in Philippians 3 is actually one long run-on sentence, which I think shows his passion uh, for knowing Christ. I want to read it out of a different translation that's a little bit more literal. Out of the New American Standard, we see that this is just one long sentence that expresses Paul's passion for Christ. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to try to read it in a way that shows it's one long sentence. Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See here, that's one long sentence, that when he is writing this, this letter to the Philippians, he, he can't contain his joy of knowing Christ. I mean, when we get excited, we get breathless, we, we can't help ourselves, we're just overflowing about whatever we're excited about. And that's the way Paul is here. He is extremely excited about knowing Christ. He's just laid out this, this goal of, of knowing Christ more fully, of counting everything else a loss compared to the, the greatness of knowing Christ. But he doesn't want these, this church in the city of Philippi to think that he's already attained all of his goals in terms of, of the depth of his knowledge of Christ. He says, no, I haven't already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. And in saying this, in this humble self-assessment that he still has a way to go on this journey of knowing Christ, he's setting himself apart from a lot of the other religious teachers of his day. Because a lot of the other religious teachers who were in that first century in Greece where Paul was, 
they would set themselves up on a pedestal and make themselves look really good um, and, and maybe make it look like they've already attained all of their spiritual goals, that they're already perfect in God's sight. Think about the Jewish leaders of, of Paul's day or of Jesus' day. The Jewish leaders, they knew the Bible inside and out. Um, they would um, make a public showing of, of their spirituality by praying really long prayers in public. Or they would make public displays of generosity when they gave money to the temple or to the poor. Uh, they would wear these long, fancy priestly robes to try to make themselves look really important. I mean, they try to make themselves look good in the eyes of others. Paul's not doing that here. Another group of religious teachers of that day were, were these traveling teachers who were very highly trained in public speaking. They were extremely eloquent in their speech. They were very persuasive. And they commanded large sums of money uh, when they spoke. There were a lot of people who were following them. They had a lot of confidence in themselves. They would come into these cities after Paul would plant a church in, in places like Philippi. And they would begin speaking, trying to win followers after themselves. And Paul had a lot of problems with them because they would distort the gospel. And they would try to pull people away from Paul, sow seeds of doubt in, in terms of whether or not Paul is trustworthy. And they would try to make people follow themselves. They would make themselves look really, really good. And some of them would even say that you can reach a level of spiritual perfection if you do certain religious rituals. So they would set themselves up on a pedestal. Um, and, and Paul in this passage is saying, no, that's not right to set yourself up on a pedestal or say you've already accomplished all of your spiritual goals because we all have room for growth. Again, not that I've already obtained all this or already been made perfect. I think what this is for us as well is a call for authenticity in our own lives. To say, you know what? We haven't accomplished everything in our own lives as well. Um, authenticity is a bit of a, a buzzword or catchphrase uh, here in our 21st century culture. People don't like hypocrisy. Um, hypocrisy leaves a bad taste in people's mouths when they see someone living a double life or putting themselves up on a pedestal. People in today's culture value authenticity where we are real with others around us, where we aren't afraid to admit, you know what? I don't have everything together. I have a lot of room for growth in my life. Uh, thinking about New Year's resolutions, I came across a cartoon, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes was one of my favorite cartoons as I was growing up. Um, this, this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I want to show you this morning shows us an attitude that it's not good to have when it comes to change. Um, Calvin in this, in this cartoon is speaking to his, his friend Hobbes. Hobbes is a little stuffed uh, tiger, uh, but in Calvin's imagination, Hobbes comes to life. Apparently, Hobbes has just asked Calvin if he made any New Year's resolutions. And Calvin's response is this. Resolutions? Me? Just what are you implying? I need to change? Well, buddy, as far as I'm concerned, I'm perfect the way I am. This is an attitude that's easy to have. I don't think a lot of us would be as blatant in saying it quite like Calvin is. But it's easy to want to project this image like we have it all together. Like, especially spiritually speaking, that, you know what? I'm good the way I am. I don't need to change that much. I think, especially for Christians, this is a, a, a real lure um, of wanting to put on a, a mask and make it seem like we're doing well. In many churches, um, it, it's all right to acknowledge that we have sin in our lives if you aren't a Christian. But the unspoken ideal is that once you place your faith in Christ, that everything gets worked out all right, that you no longer are dealing with significant struggles with sin. 
That's the unspoken reality that a lot of churches operate by. That, that Christians shouldn't really struggle with sin or that they should be reaching for spiritual perfection all the time and should be close to attaining it all the time. But Paul's saying in this passage that, you know what? It's perfectly right. It's actually good to admit that we don't have it all together all the time. That we do have room for growth. So we have the question of, okay, what do we do now? Um, I mean, do we, do we get discouraged when we recognize that we have room for growth? Paul says, no, don't get discouraged. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What he's saying here is that we need to do whatever necessary to make Christ number one in our lives. He's saying don't wallow in self-pity if you aren't quite where you want to be. Don't, don't just make a New Year's resolution and then let it fall by the wayside and think, okay, I'll try again next year. He's saying, no, do whatever necessary. Press on to make Christ number one in your lives. Going on in verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I mean, you can hear his passion here where he's, he's kind of drawing them close and saying, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Come close. I want to know Christ better. I'm not there yet, but I want to know him better. I mean, he's not trying to put on a false front, not trying to put himself on, up on a pedestal. He's saying, look, I don't have it all together yet, but I'm moving in that direction. He's using here some athletic terminology, kind of like running in a race. Remember, uh, the Olympics started in Greece. Uh, so, so running and races were very common in that culture. All types of athletics were quite common there. And Paul's using racing, running analogies here, saying he's pressing on to try to win the goal, to try to get the prize. He refers to pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's a reference to Paul's experience when he came to know Christ in the first place. Back in Acts chapter 9, we read about that. How Paul previously had been a very zealous Jew who was persecuting Christians. He actually had some Christians put to death and he was putting many in jail. And he just received a warrant to go to the town of Damascus in order to search out more Christians to imprison them because they were followers of Jesus. So he was on this road to this town called Damascus. Suddenly a bright light flashed around him. Now that light spoke a voice and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul said, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that, that experience on that road to Damascus led to life transformation in Paul's life where he became a wholehearted Christ follower where previously he'd persecuted Christ followers. Now he was calling people to follow Christ himself. He remembers that experience they had with Jesus. And he says that, that Christ Jesus took hold of him on that Damascus road. And now Paul is striving to live faithfully to the calling that Jesus has given him. He says, one thing I do, in, in the middle of verse 13, but one thing I do. And I think when Paul talks about he, he does one thing, he focuses in on one thing. And so it's important to recognize what he's saying and take it to heart. But it's a little bit challenging in this sense to figure out, okay, what's that one thing he's pointing to? He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. 
That one thing is found not right after he says one thing I do, but actually found, it's found at the beginning of verse 14 when it says, one thing I do, I press on toward this goal. That's the main verb in this sentence. The, the one thing he does is pressing on to know Christ better, to pursue him faithfully. Paul is passionate about making Christ number one in his life. I think it's very important in our lives that we are intentional to make Christ number one. Because if we are intentional to prioritize Christ and do what's necessary to make him number one, we're inevitably going to be pulled in a lot of different directions. And we all have a lot of distractions in our lives from work to hobbies to family to friends to, to church responsibilities to all kinds of other things in our life that call for our attention. And if we aren't careful, we're going to be pulled in so many directions that we aren't able to focus in and move forward on the things that are most important to us. So we must set priorities in our lives. There was a pastor back in the early 1900s named Henry, or Harry Emerson Fosdick. He said that no steam or gas drives anything until it is confined. No life ever grows great until it is focused, dedicated, and disciplined. I think there's a lot of truth in that. That If, if we aren't focused in on, the, on our greatest priorities, if we don't live out those priorities, of which Christ should be the number one priority, we're inevitably going to be pulled in a lot of different directions. We may accomplish a lot of different things in life. But odds are good if we don't focus in on Christ, we're going to lose out on what's most important. This last week I was reading the current issue of Sports Illustrated. I know that a lot of people here in Wisconsin will like this issue, uh, as Aaron Rodgers right in the front. The article I want to point us to, though, is not about Aaron Rodgers. It was actually about Tom Brady. Tom Brady is uh, current quarterback for the New England Patriots. He... Um, multiple-time MVP and Super Bowl winner. This article is about Tom Brady back when he was in college at the University of Michigan. While Tom Brady was there, there was another quarterback named Drew Henson who was also at the same college, a year or two younger than Brady. Uh, Brady was viewed just as a, a decent quarterback, not great. He didn't have great athletic skills. He's since, as we know, become a tremendous NFL quarterback, a champion. But Drew Henson was the one who everyone thought was going to be great. Listen to what one quarterback's coach said about Drew Henson at that time when he was in college, or as he was going into college. This quarterback coach said, Drew Henson was special. He was a freak of nature, in my opinion. He had remarkable talent, unbelievable talent. He was so athletically talented that he was highly recruited as a quarterback in colleges, and a lot of people thought he would go on to be a top 10 NFL pick. But he was also drafted by the New York Yankees in baseball, given a $2 million contract. And, and he was rated in the top 10 uh, prospects in baseball as well. So he had tremendous potential in both baseball and in football. Now, many of us probably have never heard the name Drew Henson. He ended up playing um, in Major League Baseball just for a very short period of time. He had one Major League hit. He's played in just over one NFL game in his life. What happened? Why didn't he ever reach all the potential that was out there for him? Well, listen to it from his own words now as he reflects back on what's happened. He says, I reached the level I did as a football and baseball player, really being a 50% athlete my whole life. It all works until you get to the very highest level of sports when everybody is basically as good, good as you or better but has more experience or is farther along the development line than you are, and you have to play catch-up. 
It says in the very next sentence that Henson wished he had stayed at Michigan for four years, then committed to one sport for good. Drew Henson, when he looks back on his life, attributes the reason why he didn't excel in the sports that he was so naturally gifted at was because he wasn't focused. He allowed his focus to be diverted in different directions. And he says, you know what, if he'd only focused in on one or the other, he could have been great. But because he allowed his focus to be diverted in different directions, he ended up not being great at either one. He had the chance to be something really special. But he never lived it out because his focus was distracted. I think it's the same thing for us oftentimes in our lives, that we get focused in a lot of different directions. And we don't ever accomplish what's most important because we don't choose like Paul did to focus in on that one thing, which is knowing Christ. So we need to do what's necessary to make Christ number one. Now, you may be asking, okay, I hear that. How do I do that? Well, here in this passage, Paul gives us a little bit more about how we can intentionally press on to make Christ number one in our lives. The keys are in the middle of verse 13. First, he says, forget what is behind. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what, what is ahead, I press on towards this goal. Forget what is behind. He's continuing to use this athletic terminology, and I think it's important to remember the athletic context if we want to interpret this correctly. Think about a runner. You don't see many runners running like this, do you? It doesn't work very well. When you're running, you, you should be focused ahead. I mean, sometimes I yell at the TV, at the football players on TV sometimes when a player is out in the open running towards the end zone and then he looks back to see if there are any defenders around him and then he gets caught. You can't keep running full speed when you're looking backwards. And that's what Paul's saying here. Forget what is behind. Don't focus on what's back there. He had a lot of things in his background that he could have been focused on. But instead he's saying, no, I'm, I'm focusing straight ahead. I think about our lives, some of the things that we need to um, really forget about our past. One thing is baggage from our past. Many of us have things in our past that, that we feel shame about or that we, we lament over the fact that we can't go back and change maybe a bad decision that we made. Um, some, some sin that we feel like is very ugly and gross that we wish wasn't that way. Maybe it's baggage such as abuse that we endured or a very bad family situation or or a loss that we sustain sometime earlier in our life that just continues to dominate our thinking and the way we live our lives today. These are things that basically act as a ball and chain in our lives that, that we need to cut that chain so that we can move forward well. We need to release the baggage that's in our past. And one of the cool things about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is that he gives us a fresh start. That he cuts us loose from the shame and the guilt of the stuff that's happened in our past. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So God offers each one of us a second chance so that we cut loose the baggage that's in our past so that we can move forward in following Christ and living with healthy relationships with those around us. One of the other things, though, that it's important that we forget in terms of not focusing on too much is our accomplishments in our past. You know that sometimes we can allow good things that we did or that happened to us in the past to continue to shape us and to captivate our attention now? 
I mean, think about some athletes that, that they had some, maybe something great happen in high school or college or maybe even in the pros, and that continues to define their lives now. Or, or think about people who did well in school. Um, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, if you're if a number of years out of school, to think about what it would be like to continue to define your life by some ACT or SAT score that you got when you were in high school. Or about your GPA in college. Or, or, if, or in a business world, to continue to define your life by some breakthrough that you made or some, some good job that you did a number of years ago. But some people are focused so much on the good things that they did in the past, maybe on their service at church in the past, that they're focused on that and they're not focused on the present and on what they could be doing for God in the future. So we need to make sure that our focus is not on the past, whether it's our accomplishments or our baggage. Now, we have a question here of, is Paul literally saying, don't ever think about that stuff at all? Do you literally need to forget everything? I mean, there aren't many amnesia pills that are out there that, if, I mean, if there are, you probably don't want to actually take them because it's not good to have amnesia. Is that what Paul's talking about? Does he literally want us to forget everything? I don't think it's a matter of literally forgetting everything. We have to remember this is a metaphor here of athletic terminology where you don't look backwards in a race. We have to remember even Paul talked about things that happened in his past. He talked repeatedly about his persecution of the church. He talked repeatedly about his conversion to coming to know Christ. He talked about the sufferings he endured for the sake of Christ. He talked about his ministry to the various churches. It wasn't that he completely ignored everything that happened before, but he didn't allow what happened before to dictate what's happening in his life now and in the future. He wasn't focused backwards. He was focused forwards. And he says he forgets what's behind him and strains toward what is ahead. Strains toward what is ahead. And this is talking about focusing our eyes on the goal and pushing forward with everything we have. It's so important that we keep our eyes on that goal, though. When I was in high school, one of my main sports was track. Um, I was a runner, middle to long distances primarily, where you run in middle to long distances, you run at least one lap on the track. For three years of my high school career, I I ran uh, the two-mile race as well, which is eight laps around the track. So you have a long time out on the track to run in circles. My coach could always tell what was going on in my mind and how I was feeling based on what I was looking at when I was running. When I was feeling really good, my focus was straight ahead. Um, but in those times where I'd get uh, kind of frustrated, get tired, uh, get distracted, where would my focus be? It would be about five feet right in front of me. I'd be running with my head down. And I can remember my coach saying, um, calling out to me, Brandon, keep your head up. Stride out. I mean, he'd literally call me to, to keep my head up because he knew that if my head's down, that means that I'm not very focused on where I'm going and I'm going to get distracted. I'm not going to be going at it with everything I have. I still, when I go out and run on the streets of Port Washington today, I still think about that. And, I mean, if you see me running by your house, depending on where my eyes are, you can probably tell, okay, is he feeling pretty good about his running or not? Because when I'm doing good, my eyes are, are forward. When I'm getting tired or discouraged, when I want to quit, my eyes are down at the ground. That's the way it is, but it's that way in a lot of life. It's especially that way when we're following Christ, that if we really want to follow him wholeheartedly, we need to keep our eyes focused on him. So here we are, January 8th, 2012. We're about a week into the new year. 
we're talking about following Christ, talking about prioritizing Him. How do we do that? Each of us, God willing, are going to have the same number of days this year to live, 366 because it's a sleep year. We're going to have the same number of hours each day, 24 hours a day. What are we going to do with this time? Are we going to use this year to prioritize Christ in new ways, recognizing that we aren't yet at our ultimate goal. We haven't yet grown in all the ways we can. Or we're going to be satisfied and think, oh, I'm doing well enough now. That's a question that each one of us need to wrestle with. I'm not calling us to make a New Year's resolution, but I am calling us to examine ourselves and to make commitments to Christ that will enable us to prioritize Him more and more. This leads to one of the exciting things we have going on at Freedance in the coming weeks. It's our Not a Fan series. You've already heard a reference to it. You've probably seen a little bit about it here and there. Not a fan is this idea that we don't want to merely be a fan of Jesus Christ. A fan being an enthusiastic admirer of Christ who likes him, who likes the benefits you get from Christ, but isn't fully committed to him. On the other side of the spectrum from being a fan of Christ is being a fully committed follower of Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about for six weeks beginning on January 22nd. Not a Fan series has three main components. One is a sermon series for six weeks being on January 22nd. Uh, the second part is Not a Fan life groups. These are groups of, of people probably in the range of six to 15 people or so. They will meet each of those six weeks. They're going to be following a DVD-based curriculum. It's, it's a really cool curriculum that is based on a movie of sorts that um, the people who created Not a Fan put together it's following this family um, who is experiencing putting uh, in, pra- in practice the not-a-fan principles. So it's a very engaging format. Um, these groups will watch the videos each time, which are about 25 minutes, and then discuss the principles and how to apply them to their own lives. And I want to encourage you uh, to get involved in one of these not-a-fan life groups. On the back of your bulletin is a list of the 11 groups we have going. On your connection card, you can sign up for one of those groups. Um, sign-ups will go through January 22nd. Uh, we encourage you to check out one of these. It's not a long-term commitment. It's six weeks. But it's a great opportunity to, to go deeper in your walk with God this new year. Now, one of the other parts of this Not a Fan uh, process, which is a little bit more optional, is a follower's journal. Now, follower's journals are daily devotionals. They look like this. Uh, that you can follow along each day as questions and passages of Scripture for you to look at. Um, it's a bit more of a commitment, but it's a great opportunity to go deeper. Uh, these journals are available for $8. You can uh, check the box on your connection card if you'd like one of these journals, and then put $8 in one of the envelopes in the pew in front of you and drop it in the offering in a few moments. Uh, like I said, this is optional. It's a way to go deeper, though, um, in this journey to move from fan to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, I want to show you a video, of, um, specifically of Kyle Eidelman, who is a pastor in Kentucky, who came up with this Not a Fan series. Um, it's him explaining what Not a Fan is all about. And my prayer is that this video will help us to see more clearly how Christ calls us not just to be fans of Jesus, but to be his followers. So let's watch.
say for me personally, um, I'm very excited about this series, not just for the church in general, but even for me, as I've been preparing for uh, the series and looking through promotional videos and looking through the DVD curriculum. I'm very challenged and convicted, but also encouraged to make Christ more of a priority in my life as well. And so I'm very excited about the possibilities with Not a Fan and encourage you to be a part of that in multiple ways, not just with the Sunday morning service. To close out this passage this morning, uh, Paul says that he presses on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's continuing this athletic imagery where at the end of the race, um, in, in a race in Greece, uh, there would be the time when the officials would call forth the race winner and give them the prize. In our modern Olympics, they get a gold medal. Then it's not, it doesn't seem quite as fancy. It would be a palm branch. But it still signifies that you have won the race. And that is what Paul is looking for here. He looks forward to the prize that God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus for. And that prize for Paul is to see Jesus face to face. And to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And this prize is available to each one of us as well. If we will set our hearts in following him wholeheartedly. And making him number one in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we stand here at the beginning of this new year, we ask that you will be at work in our lives, in our midst, um, helping us to follow you more faithfully. God, I pray that we will not treat our commitment to you in the same way that we oftentimes treat our New Year's resolutions, where we start out with great intentions, but then they fall by the wayside. But I pray that you will work in our hearts to give us the motivation we need to follow through, And that you will also work through this Not a Fan series in the coming weeks to move us to being more and more fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.